Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Uh, we come your way on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times. We are podcasting on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, as well as Blueberry and many other locations. Too numerous to mention. And then, of course, we also have the links to our guests' website. We'll be giving that to you shortly so that you can continue your evolutionary process, continue learning, to continue to grow, and uh, continue to um, basically uh, find out who you really are during this 20. 20, the year of perfect vision, inner vision, go within to find out who you really are and then get out there and uh, make a difference in the world in the best way that you know how that you are led to to do. And one of those ways, if you like what we're doing, is to support us for financially, if you can do so. We greatly appreciate those who have and those who will. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We have a PayPal and Patreon account. All you have to do is go to the links on the homepage or the radio shows page. I take that back, the missions page, where you can read a little bit about what we're all about or just listen to these interviews. You'll find out for sure. Today's program I think you're going to find very interesting because it's from a, a woman who has written... I guess you'd call it her memoir, uh, Dancing to the Darkest Light. That's a very interesting title. I've never considered light to be dark or dark light. Uh, I've heard of dark matter and a bunch of other uh, things of that nature. Uh, she is, uh, if I am correct, native-born Iranian, and uh, she is joining us with this particular work. And Sohela Adelipur. Adelipur, I hope I have that right. Thank you so much for joining us. I really try to get the names correct because it's your name. It's fine. You did a great job. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for being with us and for sharing this uh, this incredible story. Um, most of us haven't got a clue as to what has been going on uh, overseas uh, other than what we get from the news. I don't know that we want to travel there because of what's going on over there. Uh, assuming yeah. that the information we're getting is is even accurate, and that's that's a whole nother a whole nother story in and of itself. But you were born and raised in Iran in what the late sixties, early seventies? Is that correct? I left uh, nineteen seventy nine exactly when the revolution was at its at its height. Ooh. The late Shah left, and Khomeini came, and after three months, I left the country. Yes, wow. So I saw the whole Argo. Ben Affleck movie thing plus a little bit a lot more than that yes <laughs> so <I would>. <laughs> your, your story probably could be made into one of these uh, one of these movies that uh, we've been seeing as a matter of fact when I saw the movie that Ben Affleck made I thought to myself that's only like a fraction of what we went through in Iran <sighs> this is, was just a side story of what we went you know, what we saw in Iran but it was interesting. It was a Hollywood movie. Yeah. I I have to say that I, I find it uh, interesting that here we are uh, in 2020, as I've been saying, the year of perfect vision. And yet here we are at war again. I mean, at least that's what we're being told. That's the mentality we're supposed to have. And it's like, no, I don't want to go to war. Uh, I don't care what you call it. Uh, we've never been at war against uh, a virus, uh, um, a single cell or however many celled entity, as it were. And I don't know how much you know about uh, the, the television series Star Trek, but they have what's called the prime directive of non-interference. And I keep thinking, it's just trying to survive. That's all it's trying to do. And, and you know, 
And it's like, how do we know it's not intelligent? Shouldn't we be trying to communicate with, you know, and not to be disrespectful from anybody who catches it or sadly uh, perishes from it. But it just seems as though we can't seem to get along without some kind of conflict in our lives. I know television and movies, as we just talked about, they're not going to sell too many uh, tickets. And not too many people are going to watch unless there's some conflict. And I get that. But that's Hollywood. In real life, I sit here and I go, I'm only, I'm not even, I'm not even 60 yet. I'll be 60 in June. I'm already tired of those dynamics. Can we do something different? Why do we have to go to war and be in a wartime footing against this thing? We got enough problems with people. And I'm just curious in this year and in this period of time, I'm curious as to what you are aware of as far as how people back in your home country are facing this, dealing with it, working through it, because uh, we're not hearing anything over here other than apparently they, they made some mistakes. I don't I just don't know. Now, unfortunately, in uh, in Iran, um, not too many people besides the physician and the nurses, of course, um, when I say too many people, I'm talking about the government. They don't care about the well-being of uh, people. They just tell them that, uh, you know, it's nothing. They never give away the right number of casualties. They don't give away right information. I actually heard that they even stopped the trucks that they were, the other countries were helping with the masks and gloves. They wouldn't let them come in because they put a propaganda out that it's coming from United States and they're all bad for you. They're going to make you, you know, they're going to kill you. Meanwhile, I'm sure that the mullahs are selling them on the side, you know, from, and the money goes to their own pockets. I'm hundred percent sure. Mm. But as far as the virus goes, unfortunately, if there weren't so many, casualties one would think that earth is giving i mean i don't want to become as my son says too modern age but it looks like earth needed to breathe earth needed a break from everything Mm -hmm. because look at the videos of animals the way they have migrated to places that they haven't been or the water in the venice in venice in the canals that the dolphins are swimming that they have never seen it that pretty i hope that it would be a, a virus that would make people very sick and then they would survive. I, I wish there was no casualty. God knows how that upsets me, but it looks like somehow universe is telling us that w- the human beings have gone too far, that it's time for them to stop and um, let earth does what it does best, which is be just for, do the nature thing. Yeah. What nature- yeah. Well, I, I know that I've asked this of many of my guests over the last uh, last few weeks and months, uh, uh, and, and you've really addressed that. Uh, what is it? Uh, th- th- I deal a lot in spirituality and metaphysics, and, <clears throat> and many times we talk about how there are certain things that are happening on the planet that are a representation on a metaphysical level of what's going on inside us. Uh, if there's yeah. hurricanes or tornadoes or earthquakes or volcanoes or whatever they might be naturally, or if there are certain conflicts going on around the world, it's usually due to some kind of drama or conflict or what have you that's going on within us. So then I would put to them the question, so what is it that the human race has decided that it needs this virus to teach it? What, you know, because uh, in spite of the fact that we could sit here 
uh, as you you uh, uh, said, the Iranians are saying this was from the U.S. The U.S. is saying this is from China. China did this to us. You know, there was speculation early on that uh, China did this to us because they wanted to undermine Trump. Trump, uh, and there were even people who thought Trump did this to China because he yeah. wanted to do this to them. And it's like, okay, let's put all of the material aspect of it aside. What is going on inside of us that we feel like we need to inject this virus into our civilization? I honestly, so I, I, God knows I'm not a maven in these things, but I honestly think, unfortunately, the people that are supposed to actually take a lesson, as we see it with the, with the leaders of the world, the people that are supposed to take a lesson out of this situation, out of the virus, they're completely oblivious to this lesson that they're supposed to take. Mm. And it's always other people that are learning how to look inside, how to go, what is important now, what is not important. I always tell my kids, people are like fabrics. You have all sorts of fabrics. You you take a beautiful silk and you put a water on it, you stain it for the rest of you know, the rest of the time that the fabric has, or you can rip it apart in one second, but something like a denim or like burlap, no matter what you do to it, nothing will happen. So it, it's just that different people are different fabrics and what they take out of the situation depends what kind of a fabrics they are to me, to just to put it in a way so my kids would understand it when I, and unfortunately, unfortunately, the ones that need to get humble and in front of the situation and a little bit come to their knees and understand that this world, this universe is telling us something. Those are the ones that will not, their egos have taken over them. They just, they're not going to learn any lesson from it. Yeah. going to be touched. Well, I, uh, I myself uh, have been uh, very optimistic from the start. Um, I certainly don't want it. I've heard about how bad it can be, obviously, to death. Uh, and then there are those who say that there are some people who have had it and didn't even know they had it. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, what, what difference does that make? If they had it and they didn't know they had it, how would you know whether they had it or not? Because nobody's being tested. You know, there, 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 there aren't enough tests to go around nationally, let alone globally, and besides, the only way that you would know of people who had it, but were asymptomatic, as they say, is, uh, is if they got tested. And if they didn't get tested, how would you know how many people were in that category? It just It's like, you know, it's like apples and oranges in my, in my mind. But let's, let's jump forward here. You came here in 1979 from Iran. Yes. Leaving, I can't even imagine... I mean, I've, I'm a native Arizona, and I was born and raised in Arizona, <clears throat> moved to California in 2006, lived a pretty good life all in all for the 60 years, that almost 60 years that I've been here. And I hear these different stories, whether it's stories from the Jews from the Holocaust or uh, soldiers who've been through different conflicts, World War II and Vietnam and Desert Storm and on and on and on. And again, all of these different other civilians who have suffered through these different governments and regimes around the world. I can't even imagine. I can't wrap my head around that. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I need you to help us to understand better uh, not only what was going on then, 
But what was going on with you? Was this uh, you were young enough to where this was all this was all your parents doing in terms of getting you out of Iran in '79? Yes, yes. But uh, the the one thing that I want people to know, and I wish I could just make everybody know that life in Iran before Khomeini and before the revolution was no different than life as you, in Santa Barbara or in Arizona. Even the clothing that we used to wear, I mean, I showed the pictures before the revolution, after revolution to people, American people, they cannot believe it. By the beach, everybody was in, they were in bikinis and they were in short dresses and, you know, very chic. The fashion was from Europe because it was very close to Iran. And then after Khomeini, of course, it is exactly the way you see it in the news. So when uh, when the revolution happened, I actually the way I'm dressed now, as you can see me on Skype, mm -hmm. it was no different than the days that the revolutionaries would uh, attack me in the street and they would tell me, why aren't you covering your hair or why your buttons of your shirt are open? And that, that's when my father thought this this is not a place for us to live anymore and of course being of jewish heritage we are all jews we thought that khomeini uh, was going to be another hitler and the minute he gets comfortable with the new government he's gonna kill all the jews so we we all just left the country and literally we left the country because we were not allowed to leave the country with more than one luggage mm. and we want our neighbors to know that we're leaving the country because we were jews and living in a Muslim country. So basically, we locked the door. The car was in the garage. The house was there. As I said, I don't even have my pictures from when I was like a kid. I, I mm. left the picture albums there. I just took necessities and we left the country. And we started from scratch here. But we were happy. We were happy because United States to us was a lot of opportunity. You have the freedom of speech. You could you could be you know you would you were free. Nobody nobody told you what to say or how to live. To us, coming to the United States was like a dream. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be happier. I couldn't be happier. There's an area that most of us as Americans do not understand, and especially those who weren't raised in this particular faith, and that's the Muslim faith. Now, first of all, I need clarification. What is the difference between the Muslim faith and Islam? Well, it's just Jewish, being a Jew, and Jewish religion. It's the same. It's, a, it's the person that's Muslim, and Islam is the religion. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you for that clarification. I've been, I, seriously, I've been looking for that. We also don't understand the Muslim faith. I don't know how many people have read the Quran, even parts of it. Uh, I have had the opportunity, at least, to dive into it here and there. I know this much, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned in the Quran. Uh, I also know, too, if I'm correct, that uh, Muhammad said to his followers, protect the people of the book. Now, that could have been the Jews. That also could have been the Christians. I, I don't know who that's referring to specifically, but, you know, there were only two faiths at that time that I'm aware of that had a book. Um, but I don't think many people understand, and I know, and again, I know you're not a, 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 a Islamic scholar, per se, no. but can you share with us from your perspective as a Muslim, what no, is? I'm not, I'm not Muslim. I'm Jewish, but I, I have. But was you, raised with Muslims. Yes, okay. I was raised. With Muslims. Can you share with us your experiences of that connection? 
Uh, and I, what it is? I, I, it's funny you said it because when we left Iran, we were all very, very scared of the Muslim extremists. They would pick up anybody that they wanted without having a justified, uh, you know, reason or even taking them to court and they would kill him. Mm -hmm. And then after they were killed, they would ask for the family members to pay for the price of the bullet so they would release the body. That's how low at the time of the revolution, the Islamic revolutionaries, they became. And to, to, it was it was honestly a horrible, horrible time. And they at night, every night, they would go on top of the rooftops and they would take their machine guns and they shoot in the air just to terrorize people and show their power. And we, us that were living in, a, before that, we were all living in our homes, normal lives, normal cars, everything, just as I said, just like here, we had to go flat on the floor so a stray bullet wouldn't get us from the windows. But however, fast forward 35 years in my book that I'm in a hospital when my brother is suffering from leukemia and the Muslim person that had his brother in the other, uh, in the heart, um, 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 uh, my brother was in medical ICU and his brother was in the other one for the heart problem. And every single time that he did the daily prayers, which for the Muslims is in the morning, noon, afternoon, he told me that I included your your brother in my prayers, knowing very well that I was Jewish, that Allah, is, Allah which to them is their God, um, is going to help him. I'm sure Allah is going to save your brother. And I was thinking to myself, if this could be Islam, if this could be the religion, that you could be so kind that your brother, his brother was also dying in a hospital. And he was kind enough to bring me coffee, not knowing who I was, because we were both sleeping in the waiting room at night in the hospital. We wouldn't leave the hospital. I was on one couch and he was on the other couch in the waiting room. And in the morning, we could, when he would wake up early, he would go and buy, buy coffee and donuts for me and bring it for me. And he would include my brother in the prayers. And it was... It was honestly, I realized that the religion, it depends to the person who is carrying the religion, mm. like everything else. It's the take of that person. It's not the religion. It's the take of that person. You want to think that Quran said that all the non-believers should be killed, and that's why people said during the revolution, the non-believers, non-believers could be anybody, mm -hmm. should be killed. And this person that with his family that at the hospital, he was including me in his prayers. So it, it's not really the religion. It's the person that wants to take what he wants to take from whatever school of thought that there is, whatever religion that there is. It seems like uh, I, I don't have the dates correct. I should, I should do a little more history research, but... Uh, it sounds like uh, the Christians had their uh, fanaticism back during the uh, the Spanish Inquisition in that period of time when exactly. they that if you didn't believe the way they wanted you to, I, I don't think it was necessarily off with your head. They might burn you at the stake. Son were were uh, killed alive, burned alive with the whole family. Yeah, and who ordered it? The Vatican. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go back to religion, religion if it's 
if you want to take human beings are the problems the religion is not the problem human beings are the ones that are the problem well i i have often said that if we could just get rid of all the human beings this world would be perfect but then yeah. <laughs> then where would we be we, you know this world exactly but <laughs> that's that's not what's going to happen and we certainly don't want that to happen uh, the, the problem the difference between human beings and, and animals i think is that an animal a deer is born a deer and dies a deer. A mouse is born a mouse and dies a mouse. And the human being is born as a baby and could be anything yeah. later in life. Yeah. You know, it could be anything. It could be a philosopher, it could be a doctor, it could be it doesn't just grow up. They don't grow they, they just grow old the animals and they die. Yeah. But human beings they have a they have every choice of whatever they want to be. And yeah. that's where the problem is. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously uh, back in 1979 uh, and prior to that, with everything that was changing, uh, did you feel sort of a connection of sorts to uh, uh, the, the Jews in World War II who were rounded up and so on and so forth? Did you feel as though, oh my gosh, we're going down that same road all over again? Because for Jews, uh, history has repeated itself many, many times. Like Spanish Inquisition, the first thing they did is that they killed all the Jews. They burned them alive. And then at, it, during the Hitler time, they, the first thing they do, they blamed everything on Jews. And then they went to France. And what did the France, the French do? They just collected all the Jews in the stadium and killed them, just handed them over to the... It's as if every country doesn't... It's waiting. They just don't want to even know what the reason is for the hatred. They just waiting to hate Jews for some reason. And I do not, honestly, I've been looking into that and I do not understand where that hatred comes from. So it's very natural for the Jews to think that, oh, Khomeini is going to come and kill all the Jews as well. And that's why everybody, whoever could, whichever way they could, they just fled the country. Well, based upon my DNA test and the continued um, uh, diving deeper into it, uh, turns out that I am uh, sort of along there with you because I am at least a one percent uh, Eastern European Jew. One oh, percent, uh, you know. Not for Hitler to kill you, though. I don't think one percent was enough. <laughs> not enough. Not enough. Although I often wondered when I would see pictures, uh, it used to be that uh, the 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 Nazis were all in favor of uh, people who were white, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed. What color was Hitler's hair? Exactly. I'm trying to figure that out, you know? I, I get, it's like, excuse me, but you, you don't fit the criteria. Uh, you're no. going to have to go over here to this uh, big old gas chamber. I, it's yeah, like it, it the does. logic escapes me. And, and the and same. half true and half Jew. Yeah. Yeah. And, half, and this is what his shadow was. I think he that. He himself so much. He helped. He hated himself for the person the way he looked the person that he was the misery that he had so much that he had to kill everybody around him and identify himself with the tall blonde blue-eyed german that he wasn't yeah but he was identifying himself because he hated himself yeah and that, that was his shadow he killed millions of people just because of the hatred the self-hatred that he had yeah. for himself well that's one of the questions that i have now been putting out um, to individuals, not directly and specifically and and one-on-one, um, -on -one, but let's say in the media. 
And and uh, it's taken me a while to get to this phase where I'm now able to, with great compassion, human wanting to understand, human understanding, or the desire for it, what is it that you are so afraid of that makes you behave this way, that makes you talk this way, that makes you act this way? And again, I'm not asking you to change, although it would be nice, but th- I'm, that's not why I'm asking. I'm asking so I can understand and Put it aside. Do you think that that there is some benefit to that? And even to the extent that we reach that point where we can actually offer some level of forgiveness to these people for for being this way, because I keep hearing this uh, regarding forgiveness. You do more benefit for yourself when you forgive than for the other person or group or what have you. Because if you don't, if because if you hold on to it, it, it will eat you alive. I understand, but um, I cannot personally, which is a flaw that I have, I cannot forgive so easily. Because once a person shows its true colors, to me, as I always tell my friends, and again, I'm not honestly giving myself a compliment, but I'm a good friend. I value myself for being a good friend. Mm-hmm always there for my friends. And I think if you talk to my family members and my friends, they would, I, th- I hope they would say the same thing because I try. And I, first of all, I don't think Hitler cares if I forgive him or if I don't forgive him, if he was still alive, he couldn't give a damn. Sure. But I, I personally think if a person shows its true colors and I see that if that person really is not a good person or a just person or a true person, why should I? I understand. I'm not keeping the grudge that eats me up, but I don't want to forget what that person was all about because I don't want to be hurt again. And I don't want to put my positive energy and the effort that I can put to be there for another person, to help another person, for a person that's not deserving of it. That's Therefore, I don't want to forget that that person wasn't nice to me or wasn't nice to the other person or did something wrong. I don't want to forget, first of all, because I think one shouldn't forget what the person is all about. And I don't think the person is waiting for me to forgive. If I decide to forgive, I do, but not necessarily. I don't force myself to forgive because it doesn't come easily for me. Well, and again, forgiving is not forgetting. And that's something that that we keep, uh, keep reminding ourselves of, too. And yet at the same time, I know that... Um, one of the biggest keys to our well-being is also having an attitude, as the phrase goes, an attitude of gratitude, that that we need to be grateful for where we are at any given moment. Yes. I'm curious as to whether you have ever gone back to those times and found uh, spaces where you were able to uh, feel some level of gratitude. I mean, you were obviously you were alive because here you are today. You're still alive today and yeah. and thriving and so forth. Um, in, in spite of how difficult things were. And then you found through obviously your parents, you found a way to escape that. Does does that ever grate against you that you had to leave your home country? Did do you did you ever have that kind of uh, um, connection with your homeland, if you will, that you wish I, one day I, you could go back? Yeah, I actually three years ago I got my Islam because if you want to go to Iran, you have to have an Islamic passport. 
and it takes a long time for them to approve and I should cover my hair and face and have the proper passport to go back to Iran which three years ago I had my ticket and everything to go back to Iran because I missed my country but then Mr. Trump became the president and he said all these countries they cannot come in and then there was a huge argument you know between the countries and I was too scared to go back so as a result I canceled my trip mm. and I and I did not go back but as having uh, gratitude if I may say a story because this story it's it, it was an aha moment for me in 1918 the the painting Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre Basically, the Italian worker that was mopping the floor, he looked at the painting and he thought it belongs to a great Italian artist. What is it doing in a French museum? So he he took the painting, put it under his robe and left the museum. For two and a half years that the painting was missing, more people came to look at the bare wall with nothing on it than all those previous years that the painting was actually hanging on the wall. And that tells you that it, the, the power of remorse, the, the power of when you you don't know the value of something while you have it, and then you you honestly you realize it when it's while when it's gone. So I, you know, with every tragedy that has happened in my book to me, every morning that I wake up, um, and obviously the listeners they don't know of the tragedies that happened after I came to this country and my family. But every morning that I wake up, obviously I've, I notice that I lost my son, for example, at a very young age. And I noticed that my painting, my masterpiece was taken away from me. Mm -hmm. It's right there. It's, 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 it, it, it never, it, it has not happened even once that I wake up and that idea doesn't come to my head. But the difference between me and maybe some other people is that I do not stand on, in front of the bare wall and stare at the bare wall and shake my head in regret for a long time. Mm. I turn around, I force myself to turn around and look at the three other walls around me and there's still masterpieces on those walls. I smile at the bare wall, but I make an effort to pay attention to the masterpieces that I have and not just cry over the one that I lost. Mm -hmm. And that's where the gratitude comes in to pay attention to now, pay attention to the blessings that you have now, pay attention to your health, that because you're healthy now, because I don't know if you've heard it or not, they say a healthy person has a thousand wishes, a sick person has only one. Mm. <laughs> and if we are among those lucky ones that we are healthy, then that big, one big wish has been granted. So we have that one big wish. So we have to honestly be grateful for what we have and enjoy every morning that we wake up and enjoy the simple sunrise that we see and enjoy the simple sunset that we see and enjoy the flowers, see the beauty in the flower, see beauty in the laughter of a child, see beauty in whatever that we have. Because standing in front of a bare wall and shaking our heads in regret it's just waste of a good life because you have three other walls around you. So would you say that uh, your glass is half full? Unfortunately, to a fault, my glass is always half full. 
Well, that's okay. No, no. The The analogy is it's either half full or half empty, depending oh. upon your perspective. And if you're saying it's half full, then that's a yeah. good thing because you are uh, in that optimistic perspective. Yeah. So faulty. When I say to a fault, because even when my kids or my family members come to me with the with the worst situation, I always tell them, no, it's not this. You just wait and see it's going to change. Mm. Even with coronavirus, that's what I said. I said, something very positive is going to come out of it. I know people, but people are dying. I said, yes. I own oh, that part. Honestly, I know my heart goes out to them, but it is what it is. People are dying because of the virus. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the the future, the future could change the past. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, before we go to break, I want to ask you um, in reference to the metaphor of the other three walls with masterpieces. Tell us about if you will, the other masterpieces in your life? I had four boys, um, and uh, I lost my second one in a fire accident uh, at Boston before uh, a month and a half before graduation. He was my second son. But I have three wonderful sons that uh, the moment they gave me the news uh, that I have lost Stefan, I honestly... Of course, the first reaction that any mother would have is just disbelief and cry and whatever one does. But honestly, after five minutes, I looked at the horrified faces of my three boys and I thought to myself, no, 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 no. I have to be stay strong for them because they're still here. And I hugged them and I, I don't remember it. Actually, my boys told me because I don't remember anything. That's these are the things that the rest of the people told me and I kept on telling them this shall pass and we're going to be we're still a family we're still a family so and um, I have a granddaughter now of course none of these replaces my son of course none of it is going to take take you know cover the bare wall mm-hmm. but I I still have masterpieces yes mm. I still do so Hela Adelipur is my guest she is the author of Dancing to the Darkest Light. We're going to talk about that dance that she is doing as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, and we want you to stay right where you are. We'll be right back. Tell me your stories. I'll do my best to understand you. And welcome back to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, along with uh, Sahela Adelipur, and we're talking about her book, and it is entitled Dancing to the Darkest Light. Um, to have the wherewithal to be able to dance in that darkest light, and I am going to have you describe what that darkest light is or was, uh, but to be able to dance anyway uh, seems to me to, to say that you have always had uh, an optimistic spirit in li- about life, no matter what life may say, shall we say, throw at you. Yes. So talk to us about the darkest light. What, what are, are we talking specifically about what happened in 1979 uh, or just so many of the various events that are obviously uh, uh, written about uh, that you've written about in the book, Dar- uh, D- dancing to the darkest light. Um. When actually, no, our Im- Im- migration from Iran to United States 
as horrible as it was because we left everything and we started from zero. I was babysitting just to make some extra money and everybody was doing whatever. Wasn't the, the worst part. Um, even though when I started writing a book five years ago, I told uh, my friend that, you know, when I talk about my book, nobody can say, oh, you cannot talk about pain because you haven't gone through this or you haven't gone through that. Unfortunately, I have seen them all. I fortunately, I have seen them all for all the wrong reasons. So at the beginning, uh, I wanted to write, to name the book, uh, the, uh, Wrestling with God. Because I thought the whole time going from one tragedy to another tragedy, which I lost my son at the age of 22, Stefan. And uh, then my sister got very sick with brain tumors in her brain and she died from a horrible, horrible death. And then my only brother, a neurosurgeon, Dr. Fred Noban, he was, he had leukemia and I was his 100% match. And they said not to worry about it. He's gonna be fine with 100% match. And after two bone marrow transplant and me giving him 60% of my liver, he died from pneumonia the week that they told us he's going to go home. So that's make, making it very, very brief with everything that has happened. So I, was, I wanted to call it wrestling with God, but I take uh, classes on Rumi, the great poet. Mm -hmm. And once I told my teacher, this is my book, would you take a look at it? After reading the book, she told me, but Sohila, I've known you a long time and you're not into wrestling or fighting. Go home and think about the title. It's not you. And I went home and I thought to myself, she's right. You know, I was never into fighting or arguing or wrestling or boxing or anything like this. Why should I write it wrestling with God? And who said there is a God that is going to pay attention to me out of 7 billion people? We're just ant colony if we take the camera back from planet earth we're nothing but ants moving around so why was i expecting god to help me i mean considering that there is a god and about it and i thought it was just a dance life played music whatever music it played and i learned to dance with that music and if i didn't know how to dance i improvised but i moved to the music the way the music was playing and i went forward with it because if I hadn't done that, if I had, let's say, it's as if I have fallen into a river and instead of just letting go and just floating on top of the river, I hang on to a branch constantly. How long can I hold on to that branch? At the end of the day, I would be angry, frustrated and exhausted. So I, I chose to look at it as dancing. And what I was in was the darkest light. It was the darkest light. It's I think back and I do not even know how I survived. And the last chapter, Dancing with Life, is what I took from everything that has happened to me and my family. And hopefully people would read that and think, oh, okay, you know something, maybe my problem is not as bad as I thought. Maybe if she can survive all of this, maybe there is hope for me. Maybe I can, you know, tolerate it or accept it or go on with it and, make the best of it until this shall pass through because you never know. You never know what future might bring. As long as you're alive, you never know what future might bring. Is there one lesson in particular that stands out to you that you learned through this process? Yes. And if I can say that lesson, which I love stories because I think once you tell the story, it gives the lesson by itself. It's uh, what, what I learned about lobsters. 
lobsters, when they're born, they're, the, the lobster inside of the shell fits perfectly into the shell. And after a while, the lobster inside grows, but the shell does not grow. So the shell, the lobster inside is uncomfortable, is in pain, it's confined to an area, and com goes behind a rock, comes out of the shell, and looks around first for a shell that was left by another lobster, as in another words, recycling shells. And if it couldn't find the one that was left behind that fits in perfectly, the lobster would wait until it creates a shell for itself and then comes out. And then after a while, that happens again. The lobster grows bigger. And again, it has to go under the rock and change into either a new shell from somebody else or change into a new shell that the lobster created that fits that size or the situation that the lobster was. Now, if there was a clinic under the water in the ocean, they, the lobster would go to the clinic and the nurse would tell them, listen, I'm going to give you antidepression or I'm going to give you this pill. You wouldn't feel a thing and you're fine from now on. Just take the pill. The lobster might take the pill. The lobster would still be uncomfortable. The lobster would still be in a tight position. The lobster would still be in pain. But it's so drugged out that cannot even figure out what the real problem was to begin with that the lobster is such an uncomfortable position. Mm. So the key to every tough situation is change. And change, unfortunately or fortunately, is such a simple world. It's, it's not a fancy word that one looks for to, to solve the problems that one has because you change your dress, you change your car, you change your house. It's a word that you use every day. So it's not a fancy word. However, one has to realize that small keys open large doors and change is just a small key that could open a large door. And when situations are difficult, staying with the same frame of mind and wanting the same thing that you wanted before or being stuck and attached to the desires that you had before for the plans that you had before is not going to work. You have to change. You have to learn to change accordingly. And that's the key to survival, I think, just like the lobster. And, you know, change is a real uh, key that we look at quite regularly here on this program. And uh, it has to do with the fact that it is the only constant in the universe. Exactly. Change is always changing. Yes. One of the th yeah. And one of the things that has struck me so profoundly over the years uh, there's there's a great line from a song, and I've, I've quoted this gentleman many times. John Denver uh, sings about, uh, Changes somehow frighten me. Still, I have to smile. It turns me on to think of growing old. Now, as a kid growing up, it actually did. I thought, oh, it'll be so cool when I'm old enough to drive or, or to yeah. drink or to do all of the things and get a job and do these all these great things. Then I got there and I'm thinking, I'm not sure how great this is because it just seemed like there was so much pressure. But yeah. I still feel that way, uh, that uh, my great grandmother lived to be 100. And I told friends and family uh, at her 95th birthday uh, that I was going to outlive her, but she was making it really hard. Well, I've got another 40 years to go, which is like another lifetime at least. And there's still so much that I would like to do. But one of the things that I'm trying to impress on people is and I'd love for you to talk more about this, is to 
instead of fearing it and, and with the angst and all this, we need to embrace it. We need to love it. We need to basically say, bring it on, bring on the change. I read a book years ago at another station called Who Moved the Cheese? Yes, my, I love that. Yeah, yeah, my boss made me read it. It was mandatory reading. So when I was finished, I took the book back to him. I put it on his desk and I said, look, his name was Jess. I said, Jess, I don't care if somebody moves the cheese. Just tell me that you moved it. Just tell me where you moved it to. If you want to move it, go for it. Just let me know. I, I don't <laughs> like surprises from that standpoint. Maybe I haven't quite gotten a lesson, but that's kind of how I felt back then. So what about uh, this aspect of change, which, again, it's going on all over the universe. Nothing's permanent. Nothing is permanent. And when change comes, uh, it's as Joseph Campbell or Carl Jung calls it, hero's journey. Not that I'm saying I'm a hero in here, but it's called a hero's journey. It's not as my teacher always says, listen, ladies and gentlemen, hero's journey doesn't mean that you go buy a ticket on a plane and pack your luggage and go on a hero's journey. <laughs> when the call comes, you don't want to go. That's the difference between a hero's journey and a normal journey. And I, it was actually very interesting because when I saw the movie, um, Frozen 2, it was all about hero's journey. And there's a call at the beginning, which is part of the song. When hero's journey comes, obviously you're scared. Obviously you don't want to go. Obviously it's a huge change. And, uh, but you have to go. Mm -hmm. You have to go because the universe does not leave you a choice. And once you go, you, you, you have to go through all the loops and hoops and everything and come back with the lesson that you took from that hero's journey. And hero's journey usually comes with a huge uh, change. And cha everybody wants change. You want to change. You want to you change your house. You want to change your job or change your salary or change whatever there is. You, you just go every day hoping to change. It is just that these are the changes that you want to ask for not the one that it comes without you asking the change the word change is the same word it's just that we only want the changes that we are we want not the changes that the universe implies you know mm. or puts on us and that it cannot be it cannot change is change either way this way or the other way so tell me uh how has your faith changed over the last 40 years my as far as which at each book signing it never fails is somebody at the end asks me so what's your opinion about god which when i had the fundraising for my son i have a fun, fun foundation under my son's name on around on his birthday that helps scholarships and poor people and everything i had ellie wiesel as, as a spoker once as a speaker, and I, the first thing I asked him, the first thing I asked him, I said, after everything that has happened to you and your family, do you still believe in God? And he said, you don't question him. And he said, I question him every day, and that's how I know I still believe in him. And to th at that moment, I was so heartbroken from the tragedy that I honestly thought to myself, that's a stupid question. What does that supposed to mean? <laughs> the stupid answer, what is that supposed to mean? But now people ask me the same question after everything that has happened. And yes, I used to believe in the God that the religion represents. 
I don't believe in that God anymore. I believe in the God that makes the sunset, makes the sunrise, changes seasons, the thousand-year-old tree, uh, you know, that never fails. I think the answer of every question is out there in the nature, not in the organized religion, all of them. Not, I'm not even picking one. And I think if a person goes in front of a cross and cries his heart out and, you know, on the floor and cries and cries because of the problem or the situation or the challenges that he had, whoever passes by, he or she would think, oh, that's a God-loving man. But if I go hug a tree and start crying to a tree that has roots deep down in the earth and the top of it goes up to the heavens and to the sky, that no money in the world in a second can reproduce that thousand-year-old tree, and I start talking to it, if anybody passes by, I think that I'm crazy, that I've gone mad. <laughs> and that's what I say. I find the answer in nature. I have more respect for that tree or, let's say, Yosemite Park than I have for a mosque, a synagogue, or a church that was built by slaves or was paid by very rich people to glorify themselves at the time that they made uh, those buildings. That's, that's the place that I have changed the most. And I find it very gratifying when I, and I'm in love. If you look at my Instagram pages, it's all nature, beautiful, beautiful nature. That's my number one love. You sound like you epitomize the uh, statement I make quite often that nature is our greatest teacher. Yes, it is. Every answer, every question that you have, the answer is in nature. Every question. Even to the fact that when something like this happens, and my kids told me, why, why, Stefan, he was such a good boy, why us, why this family? And I told them, you know, there, there's a, the seed has all the potentials of a huge tree. You don't see it. It's, the seed is there. But unless that seed goes under the ground, in the dark, in the filthiest place, the darkest place, it would never reach the potentials. It has to be through the darkness, through the hardship, through everything that comes with it in order to reach the potential. And we don't know what the answer is. It's, it's going to stay unknowable as long as we are in our physical body. And we don't know about the rest of it. But as long as we are in our physical body, I honestly think that whatever happens, even though I don't know what the reason is for losing my beautiful son, but there must be a reason for it. And the people that are suffering from tragedies or hardships or challenges, they have to look into finding their potentials because of that. Because at that moment, the seed has gone under the dark ground and the filthy ground and, you know, the worst place that they could be. But it could be a beautiful tree that comes out of that seed. I know that it's, again, it's very optimistic what I'm saying, but what other choice do you have, Richard? When challenges come, when curveballs come, what other choice do you have Yeah. to think like that? Well, I know that uh, for me, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when uh, the COVID uh, or coronavirus, as you will, uh, as you will, uh, uh, started its, uh, its journey, so to speak, back in December and January, 
uh, and they were speculating as to what what the impact might be. I was just thinking, hey, this is great. Don't want people to die. Don't want people to get sick. But uh, if they do the same things they've always done, then nothing will change. Lots of people will be hurt, and and then we'll move on. But they did something different this time that they never did before in my lifetime. Bear in mind, in my lifetime. Every time the influenza came through, and even as a kid, I believed this. If they would just shut down the airlines for two weeks, just two weeks, it's over. Because it's not being spread, and it will die out because it only takes, I don't know, three to five days for that particular uh, influenza virus to to go through its cycle and it's over, but they would never do that. It's not good business. Well, because the money, that was always about money. It's all about mighty dollar. Yeah. It's all about mighty dollar. Their gods, their gods is not even nature. Their God is the mighty dollar. (laughs) I hear you. So it's not good business. I want to, I want to ask you, I want to shift gears just a little bit here. Cause you made this, you made the comment earlier in the program when you came to the United States about how this was the land of opportunity. Now uh, I have been commenting on this over the years that there are those of us who were born and raised here in the United States uh, who may have heard that phrase, but we're always complaining about how I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't go here and I can't go there and I I can't, I can't, I can't. And then there are those people and specifically those who came over uh, through Ellis Island back in the, at the turn of the uh, 20th century. And uh, the, the, the phrase on their lips was that this was the land of opportunity. And many of them went on to build what are now major, maybe global corporations today. From your perspective, where we are today, having heard from politicians and all kinds of other people over the last four or five years about how it's everybody else's fault that we are the way we are. It's this group's fault. It's that person's fault. It's this ideology's fault, et cetera, et cetera. How do you feel today about this land of opportunity? I still think, and I'm not saying this because I'm on a radio show, (laughs) I still think United States is still the best country in the world. It has its, definitely, it has its corruptions and the negative things that goes with it. The most important to me is NRA, which is a sad thing that happens in this country because it's the greatest country in the world. And I still think that uh, you have more opportunity here than any other country in the world. Because I see the Iranians that because of visa reasons or whatever, they weren't allowed to come to this country after revolution, they ended up in Italy or the France. And there's the, the opportunities there after 40 years are not the same as either. I mean, the Iranians over here in this country that has made huge, huge corporations and not from not knowing a word of English because they had to survive. You see, there is a mentality of immigrants that people that are born in the United States can never have it because it's like the calluses on your finger. You don't, you don't see the difference. You, the person that was born in the United States was always here. 
So if they take it for granted. All the all the positive things that they have, they don't even have a comparison to compare it to how bad is it in, it is in other countries. We came from other countries and we saw opportunity here everywhere. Even the fact that I could babysit. The minute I landed here, I could babysit and make extra money on my own was a huge deal for us. Even that. Mm-hmm. And my brother could deliver newspapers. In, in three days after we came over here, it was a huge opportunity for us. So I think the difference that it, the immigrant uh, mentality is something that becomes part of their DNA because they have to survive, mm-hmm. which not too many uh, Americans uh, have that drive or have that need or have that toughness in them to do whatever it takes to become successful especially this day and age with with everything that you saw on social see on social media everybody wants quick money mm-hmm. everybody wants quick money nobody wants to work hard yeah now, my brother used to work 16 17 hours in the hospital on, he would hardly ever sleep he would sleep sitting down on a couch and then he would carry on and i felt so bad for him, but he had nothing else to fall back on. He had no family money. He didn't have a rich father. He didn't have anything to fall back on. He had only himself. And he became a neurosurgeon just because he knew with that profession he he can survive. Mm-hmm. And without knowing, we, we knew English when we came, but he was 13 years old. He knew English, but not much. And he became a neurosurgeon. He was the head of Lenox Hill Hospital in New York for a while at a very young age. Uh, the neurosurgery department, that is. So it's the toughness that being an immigrant that you have when you come here, that you have to survive. Well, it's, it is definitely a different world that we both come from. Uh, and we are all learning lessons as we're moving forward, uh, which you certainly have talked about throughout this program. And uh, uh, I am, first of all, very grateful uh, for your story and for you coming on the program to share that story. Um, I'm also wondering, are, are, you, uh, are you more Orthodox Jew? No, I don't, I don't practice anything. Okay. I, I just find my peace in nature. Mm-hmm. I do what I do as a respect to my family. Mm. Well, I know that you are you are uh, probably very well read, considering the fact that uh, you made reference to Rumi and Joseph Campbell and uh, and to uh, oh my gosh, I, I forget the third person that you mentioned now. I had it, uh, Carl Young. Carl Young. That's right. That Carl Young. Yes. Um, it, to me, yes. it is fascinating. The various ideas. I, I am uh, uh, not only a, a you could call it a, a student of Paramahansa Yogananda. Uh, I'm also very interested in uh, 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 Teilhard de Chardin um, and uh, several others of, of that ilk and so forth. It just fascinates me to no end to to uh, to to talk with people about these different ideas. I I just I feel slightly. Uh, deficient because i haven't read too many of the classics you know or too many of these great authors i'm familiar with the names but i haven't read their ideas one of my favorites that i love to throw up is uh uh, um, uh, an author by the name of uh, kazanzakis 
and he wrote The Last Temptation of Christ. And it's not so much yeah. the story as much as it is his preface. And, yeah. and I love this, and it goes to the point of, um, uh, uh, of one of the sayings that was given to me when I was 21 and sort of feeling a little bit bigger than my britches would handle. <laughs> uh, he wrote in his book, in the preface of that book, that, hey, folks, these are just my musings. It's just what if. I don't know if this really happened or not, but I'm just throwing. It's fiction. Uh, but one of the things that's, that was given to me many years ago, well, like I say, when I was 21, uh, was a phrase that is better to begin in doubt and end in certainty than to begin in certainty and end in, end in doubt. So I just continue to ask questions. I continue yeah. to try to find answers. But, of course, with every answer come a whole bunch more questions, which, which is fine. Um, I used to be plagued by that from the standpoint of... Um, Wanting definitive answers. And then I would get I would get into a position. And as I say, when I was 21, I did where I would get rather dogmatic about my position. And the the universe had a beautiful way of giving me my comeuppance. (laughs) But after I lost all these wonderful people in my life, I was so bitter that I had to survive. I had to go on. I didn't want to be in the darkness anymore. I didn't want walk around miserable and hating God because of what he has done to my family. So I had to find my own answers. And that's where I started, you know, reading the gurus of India, you know, Nietzsche or Carl Jung or whatever, whatever, anything that I would, I would slightly get an answer. I would just go and read those great writers. I wrote all, read all those books during the revolution because we weren't so we, I couldn't do anything else. I was home scared. So I just read, but I don't remember any of it. However, just like the shell of the lobster, I think for every situation, depending to the situation, the person that's suffering from the challenges or the difficulties or even tragedies has to go and find the shell that suits them or create the shell that makes them comfortable. It doesn't matter if the answer is correct or it's not correct. It doesn't, ma- ma- it doesn't matter if the answer is definite or not definite, or makes sense, doesn't make sense, or it right, sounds right to somebody else or it doesn't so- sound right to If that, what they have created for themselves, the shell that they chose and they created for themselves, make them feel better about the situation, helps them move forward, and go on living and make the best of what they can, having had those difficult times. That's, to me, that's the right shell. Mm. Because there are many shells at the bottom of the ocean for one lobster. It's which one fits that lobster. And you have to find the shell that fits you. That's my belief. I could be wrong, but that works for me. (laughs) But, however, suicide is very, very, you know, very easy way of getting out of the pain or the misery that you have. But that's a very permanent, you know, situation for a temporarily (laughs) situation. And that's so that was not in the cards for me. So I had to go and find my own shell. And that's what I did. Well, Which and I also think, too, that we we will change shells numerous times throughout our lives. Yes, yeah, so do snakes. How yeah. many times do snakes shed, shed their yeah. skin? Yeah. And they, move, they don't even look back. They leave the skin and they go forward. How many times do they do that? Yeah. When I think the answer is in nature, the answer is in nature. Yeah. You know, and, and then the other aspect of all of this is 
that um, 10,000 years from now, at one level, none of this is going to matter. It's so it's so irrelevant to That's the grand scheme of things. <laughs> we think we're important. Mm. We give ourselves value. Oh, God should pay attention to me. Where was God when we were in the hospital for my brother and we did all these things? Where was he where my sister was up? Are you kidding me? We were just one person out of seven billion. Yeah. Who are we? And we're the, not that Yeah. And the number grows, but by the same token, do you feel also in your searching that there is an element of interconnectedness that we all share, even in relationship to your son who passed? Um, I think it's our duty. I think it's everybody's duty that especially when uh, you go, one goes through a difficult situation as my situations were, I think it's your duty and that's what makes the world a better place is when you help other people from the lessons or the situation that you have been in. And that would be the butterfly effect. It would be the ripple in the water that keeps on going, hopefully, and this one will help the other one. This one, uh, look at coronavirus now. Look at how many people are helping other people. It's it's humanity humanity as at its best. Yes, people are talking about maybe people are hungry and the riots go. I have more faith in human beings. I don't think so. I think it brings out the best in human beings. Well, I will tell you that I tend to agree with you that on, uh, uh, on the whole, I think that the majority of humans will be kind and gentle and supportive and helpful. Yet, as you, I'm sure you have seen some of the news stories and even some of the stuff on social media, that there are a select few, uh, which kind of reinforces the whole concept of thinning the herd, who uh, seem to think that uh, the most important thing in the world is to get that last roll of toilet paper and I will kill anybody who gets in my way. How about the doctors that are selling the masks on the side from the hospital? I mean, that shows the lowest, lowest, yeah. but the person has to sleep with himself for the rest of his life. And yeah. he's not going to be a happy person no matter how much money he makes out of that. Yeah. It's but, at the end of the day. Yeah. It's not about but again, those are... The smallest portions yes. of humanity, yes. unfortunately, they do, they do tend to get exploded a bit in, in social media and in the news and so forth. But the one thing that I have really enjoyed about some of the network, as well as our own local newscasts, and maybe you're getting this where you live as well, is that even if they put it at the end, there's always this wonderful, heartwarming, feel-good story about people who are doing just what you're talking about in terms of helping one another. And it just, I loved, I think one of my favorites was this elderly woman who lived next door to this other woman who had a dog. Mm-hmm. And she, the woman who lived next door who has the dog couldn't get close to her, couldn't do much for her. But what she did was her dog jumped right in, went over, got the list of groceries, brought it back. She went shopping and then the dog would carry the bag of groceries over to the woman. I'm wow. And and that's that's adorable. Yeah. Now I have I have faith in people too. Yeah. I do. I really do. I think at the end of the day they will all come together and they will all see that everybody's vulnerable. Yeah. 
everybody is going there. So, Hannah, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. This has been a delight. Uh, I encourage people to pick up a copy of your book. Again, the title is Dancing to the Darkest Light. Uh, it is um, it's a remarkable true story of life. Uh, it's um, extreme challenges as well as triumphs over the ultimate uh, heartbreak. And uh, again, we thank you so much. What website would you like for us to go to to find out more about not only the book, and I know it's available at the local, uh, at many of the outlets like Amazon and so forth, and but uh, in terms of maybe getting in touch with you, uh, maybe you've touched a nerve with someone in the sense that, boy, I, I hear what she's saying and I, boy, I'd love to get in touch with her. Maybe she could help me uh, through I, something. Like I said, that's why I want this to help people. Yeah. Because it stays a tragedy if something positive does not come out of this, yeah, and uh, you know it would be a it would be a worse than a Stephen King story if uh, <laughs> I don't change the on nature of the story. So this way, hopefully, it would. Uh, there is actually the last page of the book. There is an email that people, after they read the book, actually I received beautiful one this morning that they can email me, or they can if they just Google Sohela Adelipur. They, uh, uh, the website about the book, and then it says contact me, S-O-H-E-I-L-A, Adelipur, A-D-E-L-I-P-O-U-R. They can get in touch with me. I put my email address uh, online, so whoever has any questions or wants to vent even, they can get in touch with me. Absolutely. And Sohela Adelipur is .com. So if you want to go to her website and find out more about her, the book, and so forth, uh, we certainly would encourage you to do so. Before we let you go, uh, as is uh, per our um, custom here, I have three final questions, but uh, also encourage you when we can start moving about and meeting and greeting. By the way, I envision this giant 8 billion person hug happening as soon as all of this is over. Uh, I cannot imagine what this lack of human contact is doing to our psyches. It's one thing to be quote unquote trapped in one's home. And by the way, they said to stay home, not stay inside all the time. So get outside and get some sunshine. Um, sure. we'd love to invite you here to Santa Barbara to continue this conversation. Cause I know that there's a lot more that we can talk about. And, uh, then I have three final questions for you that I ask all of my guests. Uh, you may have addressed them to some degree during the program, but I'd like to ask them directly before I ask those questions. I want to remind our listeners that you can listen to the podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn radio, Spotify, Stitcher. You can also go to richarddugan.com, the radio shows page, as well as the homepage. And if you'd like to support what we're doing financially, there is a PayPal and Patreon account on the website of richarddugan.com where you can do just that. All right. So. My first of three questions is, who is Sohela Adelipur? Well, at this moment, I try to be the Sohela Adelipur that I was before the tragedies. And that's how actually I started because I was, as I said, I was so upset, so sad, so broken and so angry at God that I decided I cannot go on living like this. So every morning that I woke up, I thought to myself, what would the old Sohila do today? Oh, go, we, did we go to the gym in the morning? So I did. It would take a couple of language classes. So I started. But one thing that has been added to me is that I have learned I always help people. Uh, I'm, I always encourage my kids to help people. But through my 
foundation, my son's foundation, I try to be there and make a difference in people's lives now, directly. Directly. I try to be the best version of myself. I'm not comparing myself to anybody. I try to be the best version of myself that is. As they say, the new and improved tide, remember? <laughs> I want to be the new and improved Sohaila. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> so that's your first question. I want to be the best as I could. All right. Second question is, what is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? I want... Um, I, I honestly, I started the foundation. I started my book not because I thought, oh, all these things has happened. I have to be a better person, be a bigger person and help people. No, I did the foundation just because for, for selfish reasons, I wanted my son's name to stay alive. But as a result, it has changed many, many lives. And I want the book to do the same thing. I, because my, my story is so tragic. My whole life story is so tragic. First of all, I don't want anybody, when they look at me, I hope when you see me on Skype, you don't think, oh, poor thing, look at her. She's <laughs> she has been through a lot. I don't want that. But I want, through my book, to make a difference in people's lives and to see that there's hope, that there's still, really, there are three other walls around each person with masterpieces. Mm. It's your health. It's your family. It's your job. It's... It's what makes you happy. It's your hobby. It's your painting. Whatever is it that you do, you still have walls with masterpieces on it that you could enjoy. I'm not saying not to pay attention to the bare wall. That's impossible. But do not stand in front of it and shake your head in regret all day because it's not going to do the wall or the person or you any good. <laughs> you start noticing the cracks and the imperfection of the whole paint. It's not going to do you any good. So that's the message I'm trying to get out and uh, have speeches and have book signings to, to just help people because I don't want it to stay uh, Sohila's tragic story. I, I want to change the nature of it. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Uh, I don't know what my life purpose is, but I'm trying to make a purpose out of it. But every day, every single day, I don't know. Seriously, I don't know what my life purpose is. But if every day that I wake up, I make a difference in somebody's life or somebody's situation, then the purpose of that day was that. It's like, it's like I go to a chess master, somebody, a master of chess play, and I ask him, could you please tell me what's the, your best move? The best move depends on that moment, on the situation, on the opponent that's playing with him. There is no best move. It all moves that creates that best play mm. of chess. So by every day of doing the best that I could to make a difference in people's lives, even that is my son or a friend, that together each small move makes, hopefully, makes a great game of chess. Hence, at the end, the purpose of my life. All those small days together. I hope that answers, but that's how I look at it. Well, so Hela Adelipora, thank you again for joining us here on the program. It's been a great pleasure, and I look forward to uh, talking with you again down the road uh, with with some of the other things that you're working on. Thank you. Actually, I was in Santa Barbara yesterday. So oh. 
<laughs> well, if I had known that. <laughs> I was hiking. Beautiful, beautiful hike by the river. We are lucky, my wife and I, that we live up on the hill above Santa Barbara, and uh, we live out in nature. We have a family of deer on the property. Uh, oh. We have blue jays. Of course, we also have chickens and dogs and cat, a dog and, a, and five cats, all indoor. Uh, not the chickens, the dogs and the cat. So you're not suffering in quarantine at all? No, not really, no. And everything's green. So I'm hoping it'll stay that way for a while longer. But be that as it may, it's been it's been beautiful. I also want to thank our listeners for uh, listening to and tuning in to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, a reminder of the title of the book. It is called Dancing to the Darkest Light. Sohela Adelipour is my guest. The website, soheilaadelipour.com. We will be linked to her website. And uh, until our next broadcast podcast, love to lull.